typically civil war historically is referred to one or more factions or two or more factions fighting for control of a government of one government right and the american civil war was actually just a union breaking apart with the the union pro-union forces trying to stop states from leaving the union and the confederate states wanting to not be a part of their union yeah so they weren't fighting for control of one government yeah that's what i mean i guess you said it more eloquently than than i they weren't contending for who's going to control washington right they had their own capital they had their own president uh, and so they had their own confederation with their own union. So that, in my view, I guess, I don't think it qualifies as a civil war. And, and I guess in my mind, when you think of civil war, I, I see unorganized hordes of people on the streets or militias in the streets fighting each other, but it's not the, necessarily the government versus another government. This, this, this is interesting because, you know, we look at World War One and Two. you have these European powers, which then bleeds out into the second world uh, countries that are fighting with each other. And we call that the world war. Mm-hmm. But World War One and Two would be not too dissimilar necessarily from what the American Civil War was. These states were sovereign. They viewed themselves as their own state, as it were, as part of a bigger union. And the southern states believed they wholeheartedly had the right to leave at any point. And the union said, no, you don't. But they, but they didn't have the right. And this was, a, this was a topic that had been talked about from the founding. It was talked about during the Aliens and Sedition Acts. Uh, Jefferson and Madison wrote the Kentucky and uh, Virginia resolutions. Jefferson actually, he, he supported nullification, but fast forward and Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun, when it came to nullification in 1828, uh, Andrew Jackson said, no, you cannot do that. These guys considered themselves unionists for the most part that led the South. John C. Calhoun even included in that fact, he did not want to leave the union. He did not believe that the South had the right to leave the union. He wanted to find a solution to the problem. It wasn't until he died and the rest of the leaders kind of died that we ended up in civil war. It's like, it's like a marriage, right? You're married together. You are you're responsible as individual states for the people of your states, okay? Not all the people of the South wanted to leave the Union. If the, if the, the slaveholders took power, they had significantly more power in their states over the non-slaveholders. There were white people in the South that didn't own slaves, which means they had no representation. Well, well, real quick on that thought, I believe it was only 5% of the U.S. population that were slave owners. I, I, and so the South was overwhelmingly not slave owners. Absolutely. And the, and the thing is, is like those, those 5% held so much power and they used the power of the federal government over and over and over again during the antebellum period to expand manifest destiny, the Mexican American war, Texas annexation to expand slavery so they can maintain their power because they wouldn't give it up. And so it was civil war. It was a small group of people fighting against everyone else saying no. And once they had lost, once the, the, cause what it is, is we're a decentralized, factionalized society, right? And the democratic party had consolidated itself with the slaveholders into this one massive party. And it took the Republican party being formed, consolidating all the different factions that didn't necessarily agree or disagree with slavery. They didn't really care what they did care about is they wanted a little say in their government and they weren't being, they weren't able to have it. Okay. But it sounds like you're describing what's going on now. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> like the, we, we were, we had a, a rep Massey on uh, IRL, a uh, Timcast IRL last night. And I'm looking at this list of all of these members of Congress who voted to oust George Santos. Whatever your opinion is on the guy, you don't have to like the guy. But he was not, he's not been convicted of wrongdoing. He's been accused of wrongdoing. But a bunch of Republicans teamed up with Democrats to remove him. And with this, the example that I give is, look, Democrats would not expel 
uh, Senator Menendez, despite his now second, I believe, indictment, or actually more than two, but principal uh, criminal charges, they march in lockstep. They are a big party. They fall in line. The Republicans are basically the catch-all for the disparate group of varying ideologies that are at war with each other. Uh, there are members of Congress that are, as Rep. Massey described them, dibs. What, what do you call it? Defense industrial something. I don't know. Military industrial complex, we refer to it as. There are Republicans who uh, they're always going to vote for military spending, war, foreign policy. And then there's Republicans that are libertarian and say no expansion, no more spending. These people are not the same group. They, they are not united. So what's happening now is as long as Democrats are ideologically homogenous, they're going to exert disproportionate amounts of power. So long as they're playing games like uh, sanctuary states and cities, they're going to give themselves, grant themselves disproportionate amounts of power. And I think what we're seeing now with Donald Trump is kind of like what you're describing with the Republican Party. Donald Trump has created a party within a party, essentially. And I, I shouldn't say he did. I believe he's the avatar of this, this formation. Yeah. And now you have a the, the, probably the largest and strongest faction within the Republican Party is MAGA or America First. And it is expanding. It is winning. And it will grow. So maybe we won't see critical mass anytime soon, but it's certainly bubbling up. I wonder if, you know, we're eight years away, 12 years away. Maybe this elect, because of the speed of internet and information, it's much faster than we realize. But it certainly seems like, as you've described it, what? we're in a similar period. Yes, we are very much in a similar period um, for different reasons, obviously. But I mean, and it can change very fast, but it can also change for the good very fast, right? There are so many people out there. You know, I, I got into politics just like three or four years ago, just a regular person watching TV, kind of a little scared. You know, I've got kids. I'm like, what are, what are my kids' futures going to look like? So I'm going to go volunteer for, I was, Youngkin was running for governor. I was knocking doors. They don't give you they don't tell you what to do. They just give you stuff. They say, knock on doors and give these people this stuff. So I started asking questions like, what do you not like about your government? And the first thing I kept on hearing is Congress, 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 Congress is crooked. <laughs> Congress is corrupt. Oh, yeah. And so it's like, well, what if, what if you actually had politicians that actually talk to those people? Because the apps have you knock certain doors. I just knocked every door. I didn't want to waste my time. Why not just talk to everybody instead of just talking to the people that you're told to talk to? And then ask the same questions and you realize that the reason that you only knock those doors is because those are the people that voted for you and those are the people that voted for them and you don't want to actually have a conversation with them. And what you learn when you do is they all don't like Congress. Why do they not like Congress? Because Congress is unrepresentative of them because they're too small of a body. So if you had a if you if you had a group of people or a politician that spoke to those people and said, "Hey, we're going to give you a real plan. We're going to say, "Hey, we're going to we're going to clean up corruption and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to decentralize power, we're going to expand the house, we're going to bring more people in. We're going to make the district smaller. Maybe we're going to break some of the big states up into smaller states because it's actually a very good idea. The power of the government is just a lot of work, and the individuals doing that work are probably just overloaded. But I think it goes beyond Congress. Uh, you're not going to alleviate the issue of the Senate. And so I think splitting up Congress and making it more, uh, I don't know, granular, more people, more representation, it's a good idea. But then you still, now it's just even harder to get unity around core issues, which again, on, on, on the, it sounds great unless you then bump into a Senate that is the same system and, and the presidency and the executive branch that is the same system. So there are arguments for expanding the Supreme Court that I actually think do, it does make sense. The only problem is the, only, the argument's only being made for political power under administrations to give themselves more ideologically aligned Supreme Court justices. But the idea for the uh, Supreme Court was there's, you know, each appellate district has a, a justice. And right now 
we have more uh, districts than we have justices. So the argument is we should, I think we should have 13 or whatever. There's one for each. Instead, we have some that double up. I like the idea. The problem is the only people advancing it are the ones who are currently in executive power who would give their ideological allies seats in the Supreme Court to seize control. And thus we're at an impasse. I think we would need, uh, if we're going to expand Congress, I think the issue is not just Congress. I think the founding fathers didn't expect uh, the country to be at 300. No, I mean, they, I don't think they foresaw 300 million people. I mean, it, it was what, 4 million people at the time of independence, four or five. Yeah. And I think that the biggest, uh, the gap between the populations at the time, I think it's like one to 40 now. It was like one to 13 at the time. Yeah. So even that discrepancy you have in terms of some states getting more representation than the other was a difference of 13, not 40, like it is now between California and Wyoming, for example. With with what you're uh, you're saying, Jeff, it seems like the logical conclusion is perhaps a regional uh, uh, layer added to the United States or some kind of national divorce. Well, I mean, there's already a regional layer, and that's the state republics. Okay, we're a compounded republic, as Madison would say. And so when you said, well. Yeah, if we expanded Congress, it would be more difficult to get people aligned. Well, is that a bad thing? Do we want our federal government to be able to do whatever they want whenever they want? Shouldn't it be a more comprehensive system so the federal government is doing only what the federal government is supposed to do and then leaving the rest of the states as the Constitution declares? But so what I see happening is, you know, how is it that the FISA court uh, vote died the other day? Right. The, the, the foreign surveillance stuff is it, it, widespread abuses we have seen for a very long time, lying to Congress, all of this really awful stuff. Thomas Massey comes on saying we were supposed to vote on it and then they just shut Congress down. They just we're not going to have it. It's not going to happen. Imagine wh wh where are we right now? Uh, Joe Biden. Uh, certainly there are members of Congress, the Senate, the upper or lower chambers that are trying to fund foreign wars against the will of the American people because the American people don't want war. But it happens anyway. But I imagine a scenario where the president uh, does something illegal. I mean, I, I, I am of the opinion the Biden administration is one of the most crooked administrations we've seen. Giving you one example, the Biden DOJ just arrested a witness and whistleblower against the Biden family. I mean, whether or not you think this guy is a liar, this is purely inappropriate to, to make these moves. And that's what they're doing. So I don't, I, don't, I don't have good answers for you, but certainly if someone comes out and accuses the Biden family of criminal wrongdoing in politics, and then Biden's DOJ goes and arrests the guy, we got very serious problems. We can't even get the current Congress to do anything about the abuses we have seen at the executive level for decades. But so you, you said it, it gets killed, right? It doesn't, it, you can't debate it in Congress. And why is that? And I think... Uh, Dean Phillips, who's running for president, actually tweeted about this recently. He said, all the power of the House and the Senate are basically consolidated into the leaders. Well, why is that? Well, post-Civil War, post during the Gilded Age, you had this guy named Thomas Brackett Reed who came into power. He found it difficult. They were fighting over representation. They were fighting over power in Congress. And he found it difficult to get things done with uh, with his Democratic, uh, you know, uh, competitors. And so he created something called Reed's Rules, where he started to consolidate power into the speakership. And that's what we have now. So like, you know, the going back to the Civil War, what was one of the big ways that the, uh, the slaveholders maintained power was with the gag rule. The gag rule was a set of procedural rules they put in place where you couldn't talk about slavery in Congress. Well, as an individual citizen, that's where my First Amendment right 
lays is in Congress. I have a right to speak with my representative. I have a right to have my representative listen to me. And if he agrees with me, go into that body and speak for me and my community. If Congress, the other people in Congress have written a rule that says you can't talk about this thing, we're going to shut down debate, then they're not doing their job. And they're not uh, they're not allowing us, the people, to have a voice. So the one thing I want to add real quick, because I, I want to jump to uh secession again but i i believe that uh the that any state that any person does have a right to secede and i view it in sort of an american independence context when you have uh, grievances that will not be addressed by your leader the, the country is uh should be uh coming from uh, what, what, what did monty python call it a mandate from the people or from the masses and not uh wet ladies distributing swords or whatever the the crown did not care for the plight of the colonies and just smacked them around and said, you're, you're nothing to us. We will take from you and do, we do as we please, shut up and accept it. And so finally, they, the, the people said, we are being oppressed. This is unacceptable. And so we say no. And, and we won. The United States won, I would say largely thanks to France. You had, you know, the, the British crown was in, embroiled in war in, in, in a bunch of different ways. And so forcing them you know, the, the French were basically like, hey, the enemy of my enemy, right? So let's assist the colonists. We basically, you know, we view it like the French expeditionary forces came and assisted us in winning this fight for independence. The French probably viewed it as we helped them winning their war against, uh, against the, uh, the uh, Great Britain. But uh, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, so, so in that regard, we respect what we did. The United States says it was good that we decided we were being wronged and we left. But, but we didn't just leave. We fought for it. But we, but. But first, before we did that, we sent Benjamin Franklin yep. and others to Parliament, and we asked for a voice in Parliament. We asked for representation, and it wasn't until we were told no did we resort to fighting. Well, hold on. This is, this is where it gets good. It wasn't even then. We get told no. And so the, Thomas Jefferson, the Founding Fathers, are like, send more letters. Send more letters. And then... The Crown came and demanded the guns from people in Massachusetts who uh, uh, said no. Then they marched their troops onto Lexington and Concord, Concord and said, hand over your weapons. And, uh, you know, depending on who you ask, you might get a different answer. My understanding is we don't necessarily know who shot first, but regulars opened fire on Americans to take their weapons from them. And this was a full year before the Declaration of Independence. Are you talking about the Boston Massacre? No, 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 no. Don't this is Lexington and Concord. The Lex first, oh, Lex okay, sorry. So these are the first battles that we say of the American Revolution. A year and one month later, the Founding Fathers sent the Declaration of Independence. So historically, we were already fighting for it, despite never having declared it in the first place, because the Founding Fathers were like, no war, no violence. We will petition and use pressure and economics to do it. But what happens with, um, it was the, I believe it was the Intolerable Acts, I could be wrong. Um, but basically, the crown is saying, because you're dicks, Boston Tea Party, we are going to impose penalties on you. And the colonists were like, we are you, you are beating us down. You will not listen to a thing we've had to say. So we reject your 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 policies. And so they said, OK, then we're going to occupy you. And the founding fathers are like, this is getting out of hand. We don't want this. Shooting happens at Lexington and Concord. We consider that to be the shot heard around the world, the first battles of the revolution. Well, don't forget about the the uh, exaggerated propaganda of the Boston Massacre also. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that, yeah. That was spread across the colonies as some massacre. 
couple people were killed. I don't know the exact details of it, but per, it wasn't a massacre, so, so, so to speak. Perhaps, but based on the population size back then, I think it was probably a big deal. Well, I, I'm just saying that the use of the word massacre right. and purposely <laughs> made to rile fun. people up. Was, well, I mean, the, the propaganda was on both sides, though. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, Sam Adams and Paul Revere, they were, they were trying to use it for their ends. It was, you know, when you get in a situation like this, the people in power tend to use anything they can to nudge power sure. in their direction. Sure. Massacre. Uh, how many people uh, was it that died? I think it was, was it like four Christmas addicts. I know uh, he died. Five. Five, five. five people. Five people. Five people. And uh, you know, historically, we do mention like they were publicizing it as a massacre. But but my point ultimately was um, a lot of people think that if you watch any popular media or movies or whatever cartoons, they depict the American Revolutionary War as the founding fathers declared independence. And then the crown dispatched troops yeah. when in reality they were already shooting and killing Americans and fighting was happening. And the founding fathers a year later were like, I think we should declare independence. And it's like, well, you're already fighting for it. But uh, my point in this is we look back at that because we are the winners and the good guys won. It's like Norm <laughs> MacDonald said, hey, I, I just read history and good news. The good guys have won every time. <laughs> the Civil War. Uh, it was, I read this letter and you may, I don't know if you've seen this cause I, I don't remember exactly where it was. I was reading an academic paper on the civil war. U Ulysses S. Grant wrote a letter after the civil war saying, in essence, by all means, you have the right to secede, but no, you will, you will go to war. And if you lose, you will be ruled by your betters. And so it was, a. It, it's, it's, I, I believe it's the most apt perspective. These are these are these are people who are the what I mean effectively grandchildren in, uh, or great grandchildren of revolutionaries who fought against the crown and said no we'll be our own country having to reconcile what's the difference here politically and his point was by all means try and we will fight you like they fought us and if you lose you will be ruled and that's what happened and the Supreme Court I think actually said something about that in 1869. Uh, there's this, there's narrative out there that, you know, you say you don't have the right to secede, but the Supreme Court ruled that you do have the right to secede under certain conditions. And they are, first of all, the consent of the states, which is what they wrote their own words in the Texas versus white, the states have the right to secede with the consent of the states. The problem is they didn't define what that was. Mm. Is that a consent of Congress or is that literally consent of the states? And at the time, how many states were there? So what would you need? 50% of the states, state legislatures to approve it? That's the kind of the angle that we take at CalExit and says, if California is going to secede as a whole or any part of it thereof, that we would need the consent of the other states. And I think that there would be 26 red states out there who would love oh, to yeah. see a blue, the bluest part of America secede from the oh, union yeah. and maybe would get the legislatures in 26 states to approve of that.